From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving despite the pandemic keeping families apart. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. Today, Ryan and I each share an interview from the past year that we're especially grateful for. I mean, it's a big deal for people to come on the radio and open their lives to us. Like Ken Feltz of Arvada, at age 90, in the solitude of quarantine, he started to come to terms with a part of himself he'd suppressed, a chapter that remains difficult for him to talk about. Even now... It's still really visceral, huh? Very much so, yes. Do you think that that's proof it's true love? It must be, because it's hung on for 60 years now, buried, and then dug up. Then my conversation with the first black astronaut candidate, Ed Dwight. Today, he's a celebrated sculptor. I got into this art thing on a total humbug, if you will. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving, despite the state of the world. Today, Ryan and I are sharing an interview from the past year we're especially grateful for. Yeah, and we don't take it for granted that Coloradans come on our show and share their inner lives with us. So, Ryan, what's your pick? Well, without any hesitation, it's my interview with Ken Feltz of Arvada. Several months into quarantine, He began writing his memoirs from his birth in Dodge City, Kansas, to his time in the Navy. Fifty pages in, painful but also beautiful memories stopped him in his tracks. Scenes he had buried. Felt's daughter, Rebecca Mays, noticed a change in her father, so she asked him what he was missing most. He said he was missing the one true love of his life. And did he say who that person's name was? Not until an email later that night, and he told me it was Philip. Philip? Had you ever heard of Philip before? I had never heard Philip mentioned at all. Had you ever talked about Philip before this moment, Ken? No. Philip was buried very deep. I was really a closet gay, for sure. This, Rebecca, for you must have been quite the revelation. What was your reaction when your dad revealed this to you? He was so sad, and my reaction was simply to try and comfort him like I would, whether it was a male or a female. He was so filled with regret, and I remember telling him that he made the best decision he could with the information that he had at the time, and that I hoped that he could focus on that and not beat himself up so much. You saw him beating himself up? Yeah, he was really upset with himself and felt like He had missed a huge opportunity, the biggest opportunity of his life. My background in starting in Dodge City, Kansas in 1930 was a rather fundamental Christian background. We all learned right and wrong, do and don't. And I, uh, among all the kids, learned very well that homosexuality was a sin and there was consequences for a person who engaged in sin, which I hung on to very tightly a a good part of my life. After your conversation with your daughter, you ultimately decided to come out on Facebook, again at age 90. Uh, What went into that decision, Ken? It was a little bit of uh, saying to myself, well, she took that well. I wonder how other people would take it. I talked to some of my best friends, particularly a, a, a female friend that I was in water aerobics with that was close to me, and she uh, read my statement I was going to put on Facebook the next day, and she was highly approving of it. 
as were others. So I then decided, okay, I'll put it on my Facebook. Well, I put it on my Facebook, but I put it on public also, which actually I wasn't really aware of what I was doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it got out a little further than I had planned on it originally. And then I sent it to all my email friends. Well, and I'll say that this has now made its way around the globe. Uh, okay, so you ran this post that you were going to put on Facebook. You ran that by someone who you met in the swimming pool. Yes. And she reacted well to it. She um, did. She really did. As I say, she was the closest friend I had over there, and I was concerned about her uh, because I thought she might have romantic feelings towards me. Oh. And I really felt bad if that was true, and I wanted her to hear this from me and not hear it from the radio or something else. So I did. I went over and spent an evening with her. He also read it to me the night before, and I thought it was absolutely beautiful and perfect. Will you read a portion, Ken? There comes a time when you grow old that you have to face up to how you have lived your life, to face up to your inner self. I have always had two personas, the one out in public that I call Ken. The other one is my alter ego I know as Larry. Both of us have fought for control and each dominated for a period of time. Ken, however, for a long time has done a pretty good job of keeping Larry at bay. Ken had planned to take Larry to the grave with him, but now Larry is on his own and may have replaced Ken as the dominant persona in his body. This message here is that I am free, I am gay, and I am out. Tell me about this Larry fellow. First of all, where did that name come from? I don't know where it came from. It just popped up. But uh, Larry's my alter ego. Larry's the censor of my life as long as I was straight. He would be the one that I would talk to about what I'm going to wear today, where I'm going today, what should I do if I read a book, will other people think I'm gay? Larry was kind of the, the, the gay part who wanted to be gay and be out and Ken was the conservative part that kept overriding Larry's decision. So Ken had to be the one that ran everything as a conservative individual. And that was down to what you would read? Oh, yes. I, I would not go to the library and check out a book uh, on gay people, or I wouldn't even buy it at a book stand for fear other people would think, oh, he must be gay. So everything I did was censored underneath. Tell me more about the reactions that started to come in. And again, th this was not a private post, uh, so that means that I, I gather some strangers started to reply. Actually, hundreds of strangers have replied. Even this morning, there were 42 messages on my computer when I got up. So I have to start answering them. But yes, I, I got messages almost immediately from strangers. Almost everyone was supporting and congratulating me on doing this. And many of them mentioned the fact that they were hoping that they could come out someday and that my coming out has given them courage. Are there other older individuals that have reached out to you? A number of them. They talk about having been married for 20 years and finally come out and at age 50 or something. Uh, I've had older people particularly seem to regret not having come out. Here's what fascinates me. You had a coming out, Rebecca. Yes. To your father many years ago. Yes, 25 years ago. You came out as lesbian. Right. Did you ever suspect that your father was gay? I wasn't completely surprised 
when he came out, but I was mostly surprised, and I certainly had never heard of this Philip fellow. I thought even if my dad was gay, he had probably never acted on it. How was your coming out to him those decades ago? It was a little rough. Um, He was telling me the things that he'd been telling himself all these years, that this would make my life harder, and it was not the right thing to do, and my relationship would not last. But I proved him wrong. You've been in a long-term relationship, a marriage. For 25 years, yes. 25 years. When your daughter came out to you, do you remember thinking thoughts about your own homosexuality, Ken? Oh, yes. It was an uncomfortable position to be a gay person in the closet telling another gay person who is coming out of the closet that it's wrong to do that. You should stay in the closet if that's where you are. And I really had mixed emotions, but I just did not feel I could come out. Hmm. In other words, there was a part of you that wanted to tell your daughter that you were gay? Oh, yeah. At that moment? All my life, yes. And yet you kept that a secret for many more years after that? That's correct. Is there a part of you that is mad at your father for his initial response to your coming out? I did go through that a little bit, but I quickly forgave him. He also came around very quickly and is the biggest supporter of our marriage and our children, so I don't think of it as a bad thing anymore at all. You talked a bit, Ken, about your upbringing in Kansas. What do you remember it feeling like as a kid when you first started to realize that you were different? When I was born, of course, in Dodge City, we were regular church members and attendees. We moved because of my father's job several times and ended up in 19... 42 in Belen, New Mexico, a small town. And in that town and and in that school, I met a young man that, he was a boy, and he invited me over to his home for a sleepover. The town is mostly a Mexican village, and the houses are adobe, and there's one heater in the living room that heats the whole house. So at night, the doors are closed off to empty rooms, and the other doors are open for the heat to circulate. Came bedtime, we uh, undressed to our underwear and went to bed. As the night wore on, the stove ran down, the room got cold, and we were snuggling, and we finally just kind of figured out what life was all about. And that was when I decided, man, this is what I'm going to stick with the rest of my life. So, yes, that was that was it. I decided then that I was homosexual. I was gay. And remind me how old you were. Twelve years old. Twelve years old. But that also meant that you were going to keep a secret, I guess. I immediately knew I had to keep a secret because I could not tell anybody because I knew from my training that it was a sin, it was wrong, and I'd probably go to hell if I continued. Do you think that your parents ever suspected? I don't think so, although I wondered why they never questioned the fact that I never went to school dances, never brought a girl home, never dated, never went out. But uh, the only other time I thought my mother suspected was after Rebecca was born, and they came to see their new grandchild, and my mother held her in her arms, and she said to me, I didn't think we'd ever see this baby. And I thought she meant that I was never going to have a baby and uh, that I was gay. But what she really meant was she thought I was never going to get married and therefore never have a child. Hmm. So that's the closest I got to thinking that she knew something. 
Coming up, how Ken Feltz met Philip, who would become the love of his life, a love he'd eventually run away from. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to the story of an Arvada man who came out of the closet at age 90, a result of the reflecting he's done during the pandemic. This is the story of Ken Feltz, who joined us along with his daughter, Rebecca Mays. She has watched her dad go through a metamorphosis after opening up about his one true love. After you completed your four-year enlistment in the Navy, you finished college at the University of Kansas, and you liked California. So you decided to move there and find a job, and that's how you met Philip. That's correct. Tell me about the first time you met Philip. I met Philip for the first time while working for a new company in California as an insurance investigator. We had to do our investigations in the morning. We did our reports in the afternoon. Uh, When I got back to the office, I had a little problem with writing out this new form that I had not familiar with. And Philip came over to me and wanted to help me. And we got on real well just almost immediately. We started coffee and then we started dating. And from then on, uh, it was Philip and I together all the time. What do you look like? He was a little shorter than me, brown hair, blue eyes, a beautiful smile, soft lips. And he, a, bit, a bit younger, I think. Oh, you. definitely. Five years younger than I was. Yes. And what did you like about spending time with him? Just the company. I mean, the fellowship, the holding hands, uh, the closeness, things like that. They were just, it just felt so good for a person that had been alone for so long. Were these the sense memories that were coming up during the pandemic as you started to write your memoirs? Yes, uh, very definitely. Uh, See? (sighs) Sorry. Even now... (sighs) It's still really visceral, huh? Very much so, yes. Ah. Do you think that that's proof it's true love? It must be because it's hung on for <clears throat> for 60 years now, buried, and then dug up. And it's kind of hard to get around it right now, but it's getting better. It's getting better. Okay. When you say it's hard to get around it, what do you mean? Except the fact that it once was and will never be again. Uh, that it's a memory and it needs to be reburied, I guess. My goodness, you've, you've just reminded me of that quote by John Greenleaf Whittier. Of all sad words, of tongue or pen, the saddest are these it might have been. That's it. If I had stayed. So what led to you and Philip separating? <sighs> One Saturday night which I remember very clearly. We had worked in the yard all day, and we had dined with his sister and her daughter. We had showered together. We had gone to bed as usual. We had a 
a candle which we kept on the nightstand at night. It, it sounds like at that point you were living as a gay man. Yes, I was. Okay. So we went to bed, and we were as intimate as we had been, and Philip suggested we might take our relationship to a step higher, which then we did, and it was a very intimate night. When you say to the next level, you mean physically? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And the next morning was Sunday, and we went to church. He was in the loft singing in the choir. I was in the pews watching what was going on, and it just hit me that no matter how beautiful our night had been, how wonderful it was, how much I loved it, according to my training, my upbringing, my religion, it was a sin. I was wrong. What I had done was not right. Uh, And I couldn't shake that. So I don't know if I ever told Philip uh, what what happened, but we stayed together about another month, and then I couldn't take it any longer. So I left. You couldn't take the shame that you felt. That's correct. You left, like, with no trace? Oh, no, no, no. I made the proper arrangements. I resigned my job at the retail credit company, and and he corresponded with me after I got home. Unfortunately, I was so determined to be straight that I did not respond to his letters. And eventually, uh, he stopped writing. And you eventually got married to a woman. Again, uh, while I was being nice and straight, yes. Uh, I moved to Colorado Springs, got a job as a office manager, joined the, a, church, a major church and became almost part of its staff, met a young lady in the youth group, and we did share some similar th- thoughts and interests. And uh, in about six months then, we married, 1961, What do you remember going through your mind when you were exchanging vows? I don't remember at all. I really don't. I was just caught up in the moment here that I was just this straight person. How many years were you married? About 15 or 16. And this is when you have Rebecca? Married in 61. She came in 72. We got divorced in 80. And how often during that marriage... Did you struggle between Ken and Larry? Very little. Because I honestly, huh. I did everything I could to be straight. I never strayed from being straight during the marriage. Did you love her? I did. I did. It's a different kind of love than what I had with Philip. Just standing next to you, you could feel the love flowing. Uh, it was totally different, not negatively so. But it was a different kind of love. And I thought, okay, this is what heterosexual love is all about. How is it to hear that, Rebecca, about the contrast between the relationship between your parents and the relationship between your father and Philip? Well, I know exactly what he's talking about with Philip since I feel that with my wife. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I'm sad that he didn't get to enjoy that for longer like I have. And does it change your perception of your parents, of their relationship, of what it meant to be their kid? You know, not not really. They argued quite a quite a bit when I was younger, so I'm kind of surprised they ever loved each other. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I knew they loved each other, but they they certainly had a lot of disagreements. 
How long did Philip keep riding you? Only a few months, very few months. And did you try to keep tabs on him? This is pre-Facebook. That's correct. And so I go to the public library and find the Long Beach phone books and call all the Philip J's in the phone book, see if I could locate him. But nobody said they ever knew me before. Uh, so you did try that? Oh, yes. I tried that after the divorce. After the divorce. That was probably divorce. one of the first things I did after the divorce was suddenly I'm free and maybe it's time to look at my other side. And so I, I started looking up. And right, you're right. There's no computer in those days. There's no way of looking up the person. During the time between leaving him and getting the divorce, I had lost or destroyed all of my records and pictures and things like that because I was moving around a lot. So something had to go. So I didn't have hardly anything left to find him with. No letters that he had had, no addresses. I had even forgotten his sister's name where she lived. And I gave up because I just couldn't see finding him with what limited resources I had. Do you know what happened to Philip? Has, has oh, yes. Any... One of the people who wrote to me on Messenger, having seen this story, wrote and said that her job was to find parents for adopted children when adopted children were looking for their parents. Yeah. And she volunteered to find Philip for me. And I told her, yes, I'd, I'd really love for you to do that. So within a week or 10 days, I got the first message from her. First, it was, I found Philip, and I think he's still alive. And certainly, I was elated. And then a couple of days later, she told me that she had definitely found Philip, that he had passed a couple of years ago. Uh, but she did connect me up with one of his uh, nieces in California. So I did have some contact. And how did that go? I'm so sorry you lost him. Did you have fantasies of, of maybe him being alive still and reconnecting? That's correct. That was, I, ah, that was what I really hoped for. And uh, he had had a partner for many years, but the partner had died, oh, 10 or 12 years ago. And then Philip lived alone the rest of his life until he died in 2013. And I was always hoping that... He would be alone when I found him, and we could get back together. Hmm. How is the conversation with his niece? We've got along real well. We still correspond. I uh, sent her links to the interviews that have been out, and she had part of his belongings after he passed away, and she went through them and sent me some pictures of him. So I've been very appreciative of that, and she's understanding very much of Philip and my relationship. Did Philip talk about you to her? Oh, no. He, according to her, they hardly knew him, that he was a very private person, that's the way she put it, hmm. and did not really connect with the rest of the family. And our story of coming out late in life mid-pandemic concludes in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now, the final part of my conversation with Ken Feltz of Arvada and his daughter, Rebecca Mays. Mays has watched her 90-year-old father blossom since he came out of the closet. The quiet and isolation of the pandemic led him to open up about Philip, the love of his life, a love he thought was forbidden 
and ran away from. Until recently, his daughter had never even heard of Philip. Rebecca, what do you hope for your father? Uh, Mostly I hope he can forgive himself. Uh, I hope he can be happy. I'm so glad he's working through all this. And I just hope he enjoys however much time he has left. Have you forgiven yourself? No. No. Do you want to find love? I'd love to, yes. This lockdown has really been tough living at home. I live alone, and uh, the days do get long. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to just be companionship, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really hard to be single right now. I think so. That's really uh, detracting from his dating game. And in what other ways have you embraced the true Ken? How else does it manifest? Uh, because of the the virus, uh, oddly enough, I've not had a toe trim in months, and they were getting pretty bad. So my daughter made an appointment for us to get pedicures. We got pedicures, and she got blue toes, and I got purple toes. So my, my toenails are now just a bright purplish turquoise. Uh, I wear a wristband. I think it's a rainbow wristband. It's a rainbow. I have a, a rainbow hoodie, which is very attractive and really gets comments. I attend the um, virtual meetings at the LBG Center, doing whatever I can to further the gay cause. And what does that cause look like to you? It's so much different than it was when I was with Philip. I, we were actually in a felonious relationship because it was very illegal in California at that time, not just what we were doing, but uh, uh, you couldn't even uh, hold hands in public. It was a, a terrible time then, and right now it would be so much easier for young people to come out now, even though I know it is still very frightening and there's always the parental concern as much as anything. Mm. But um, it, it's different, and I could not have come out then. I was no problem coming out now. Rebecca, do you remember that appointment to get your toes? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, We just went in for pedicures, and I went to pick my color, and he said, well, pick a color for me. Get me a nice teal or turquoise. (laughs) And it's just amazing. After all his life, you know, I'm used to him in uh, conservative colors, browns, blacks, uh, maybe navy blue on a a crazy day. On a crazy day. (laughs) Yeah. And now... Uh, He wears these bright clothes. He's got this tank top. Uh, He's never let his hair go get so long as it is now. He always kept it very short, and uh, it's just amazing to see the transformation. Do you want to be married again? No. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've been there, done that. That's correct. That's correct. Now, of course, if it was uh, Philip, I'd marry Philip again. Hmm. What do you think you still have to process with Philip? I have to really believe that he forgave me. I think that would be the starting. <clears throat> I think that would be the starting point of telling myself that what I did was necessary at that time. 
And I'm very thankful for having at least found out that he did live his full life, hmm. had a partner. So I don't feel so bad about that. I'm so grateful to both of you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Ryan. You're welcome. Thank you. Ninety-year-old Ken Feltz of Arvada and his daughter Rebecca Mays, a picture of what's come to the surface for one family during the pandemic. You can see a photo of Ken in his bright rainbow sweatshirt at CPR.org. It's an interview from 2020 I indeed feel especially grateful for. And when we come back, my colleague Avery Lill is back to share one of her gems from the past year. This is a Thanksgiving week gratitude special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. While there are still Thanksgiving leftovers in the fridge, we're taking some time for gratitude, highlighting interviews we're especially thankful for from the past year. We value every conversation, but no doubt some leave an indelible mark. Colorado Matters host Avery Lill is back with her pick. Hi, Avery. Hey, Ryan. I keep thinking about my interview with Ed Dwight. I talked with him about his art, but he says he's usually interviewed for another major accomplishment of his. He's a former Air Force test pilot and the nation's first black astronaut candidate. Uh Later in life, he became a sculptor, a celebrated one. In his Denver studio, he makes large-scale bronze memorials depicting important African-American figures in history. That work is particularly pertinent this year, with statues and monuments coming down across the country. In Colorado, the statue of a Civil War Union soldier in front of the state capitol and a Columbus memorial in Denver's Civic Center Park were toppled by protesters, and the city of Denver removed a prominent Kit Carson statue. Ed Dwight is part of conversations about what to do with statues like these. Ed, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Thanks. You're 87 years old and you are not retired. You still make art. What keeps you engaged? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of finishing what you started. You know, every time I th- think about retiring, somebody gives me another brick project that I cannot resist. <laughs> People around me keep telling me that I'm not 87, that I'm, you know, 50, 60, and, and I need to start acting like I'm 87. <laughs> well, one of the things that people have contacted you and asked you to do is to make some pieces to replace statues that have been removed. Well, you know, that it's, it's really interesting because I have a list of about 10, 12 memorials that I've been working on for years before all of this, uh, you know, realization of memorials and white memorials and Confederate memorials. And the idea of replacing these things, it hasn't moved to that yet. There's a lot of politics associated with replacing these memorials. Uh, and, And there's a lot of questions yet as to whether they should be replaced or whether they should be placed in a museum someplace. And as an artist, I'm not against that idea of of placing them into uh, a museum, because I think people ought to know about them. But the moral of the story should be that we won, if you will, because they're not out in a public forum anymore. They're they're in a place where you can go, if you care to go visit them uh, and see and read the stories about what they did. And and I think that that kind of history needs to be looked at and studied. 
So there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, so it sounds like you're saying these sculptures, they still have education work to do, but maybe not in these places that are celebrated. Yeah, yes. Uh, We we, we brought America, uh, and it took uh, this George Floyd thing to to bring this to a head. It was going to happen eventually because America has to come to grips with that. Uh, This argument whether you're a racist or not a racist and uh, whether you uh, are quite racist and don't know you're a racist and (laughs) maybe you don't know that you're doing racist things and everybody's studying that now about, you know, what what does all this racism mean? So anyway, back to the, if we can move back to this thing about coming to me and asking me to replace things, is this idea uh, of of glomming onto a bunch of black artists and say, okay, we're going to bring you guys all in the room. We're going to assign each one of you one of these memorials to do to replace all these more memorials we tore down. Personally, I don't think that's going to happen because uh, there's not enough of us to go around, enough black artists. We have a few, and they know about the art part of it, but the art part of making a memorial is only maybe 40, 45% of making a memorial. The rest of it is politics and fundraising and planning and meetings and meeting with city councils and art committees. And there's a whole host of things. And how do you spend that money that they give you to do, uh, you know? And my dream state was to to have a school for, for those artists who asked me for help to teach them foundry, to teach them granite work, to teach all the things that you end up having to do to build a memorial. And this is not to say that they can't go out and build memorials because the way the system is, all you have to do is the original model and do 3D printing, and you don't have to touch it. You can go home and uh, go out on the beach and sit there till the foundry finishes, and you don't have to do anything, <laughs> you know. But it ends up, in my opinion, it ends up in the white foundry's hands at the end of the day. And my idea was to have some some black sculptors and black foundry workers and people like that that are not in the system now. And I I wanted to add them to the system as an asset to the black community so we could end up being a little bit self-determining about how we get things done. So it's important to you to be involved from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And tell me about how you learned about that other portion of monument making, mm-hmm. not just the artistry, but also dealing with the politics and the city councils and the fundraising. You know, I came to the party with a global view because back when I was in the astronaut program, I traveled all over the world and I met presidents and senators and congresspeople and, and heads of uh, aerospace companies and heads of businesses and so I spent a great deal of time doing subcontract work, even when I say subcontract work, when, when you're in the astronaut program, all these companies are romancing you to buy their space gloves and to buy their space suits and buy their space helmets. So you're constantly going to these companies and, and having them sell you things. And so when you, when you come to the party with those kind of the ability to talk to people. And then I, I went to work for IBM Corporation, and then I had a chain of restaurants uh, here in Denver. I had five restaurants here in Denver. And then I went into the construction business. I had an aviation flying service out of Stapleton Airport when it was still there. And I had an interior decorating firm. And, and so when I became an artist, I had been in business and doing so many different things and negotiating with banks. 
to get financing for my restaurant chain and uh, get financing for the aviation thing that we did and getting financing for my apartments and my condos and talking to company heads and savings and loan heads to get large sums of money for these building projects I had. Well, when I got into the art business, it was just art was just another commodity to me. And I had a great Rolodex file. So when you come to the party with that uh, and you're tasked with doing an art project or, or some art, which I never ever thought I'd end up doing. And, and I, I didn't do the first art till I was 45, was sculpture till I was 45 years old. So I'm all self-taught. I got into this art thing on a total humbug, if you will. <laughs> I was taking my construction junk at the end of every day. I'd go out to my construction sites and my Mercedes Benz and I would load the trunk up with all the pieces of metal on my construction sites. And I'd load them in the back of my car and I'd take them home and on the weekends, I made art out of them for my house. And our first black lieutenant governor, George Brown, was at my house at a party. And he called me to his office when he was elected lieutenant governor. And he says to me, uh, Ed, I love all that art in your house. They want a, a sculpture of me to put in the Capitol building as the first black lieutenant governor. And I says, that's not good for me because I weld nails together. I weld pieces of metal together. I've never modeled in my life. <laughs> and he says, you're going to the library and you're going to get a book and you're going to teach yourself how to sculpt because you're going to be a sculptor and you're going to be one of the greatest sculptors that ever lived when I get through with you. <laughs> and I thought this guy had lost his mind because I was making some serious money in my construction company. And uh, he told me a story that I'll share with you. He said there's 350 uh, years of black participation in America. And you cannot go to a museum, a park, a gallery, a city square, and find one black sculptor of a black person. And I'm going, I went to white schools all the way through, so my response was, who cares? And he got angry with me, and he asked me if I knew who Harriet Tubman was. I had never heard of her. He asked me who Frederick Douglass was, and he got very angry with me. And he got me a pile of books. And he said, first of all, I want you to get in one of those jets you have out there, and I want you to fly around the country, and I want you to visit the museums, the parks, and I did. It took me several months, and I could not find any black statuary. And I came back, and I said, George, I see what you mean. And so I sold all my companies <laughs> and went back to the University of Denver and got a master's degree in sculpture and ran the sculpture department there. for. for I was in the sculpture department there for three years. And uh, I, I left there, and that's when I went in to start doing memorials from there. That is an incredible journey. So you moved from saying, who cares that there are no statues of black people in the United right, States, right. to crafting many important ones, including the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in City Park right. in Denver. Right, yeah. Tell me what you remember about making that particular place. So I came up with a really wonderful idea because... I had learned about Rosa Parks, and I had studied Dr. King, and, and he had traveled to India to deal with him with the, about the nonviolence, and I read every one of Dr. King's speeches. And I come to find out that 
Dr. King stole a lot of material from Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass because <laughs> I read all their speeches too. <laughs> and so I started comparing some phrasing and stuff like that. So I decided that since Dr. King used all these people, he used Rosa Parks as a vehicle for the movement, Frederick Douglass, his speeches, and Sojourner Truth, her speeches, and his nonviolence from Gandhi, I had them metaphorically standing on their shoulders. And so that really kind of stole the, the show that, that I would think that far ahead to have him standing on the top and metaphorically standing on their shoulders. It strikes me that you're doing this incredible amount of research for yourself as an artist. And before all this started, you said you didn't know who Frederick Douglass was or Harriet Tubman. Tell me about the role of public education in public art. Oh, you know, it's really, 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 really sad to be totally candid with you because naturally, I I went to white Catholic schools and there wasn't any reason for any white Catholic school to teach black history to anybody, you know. And of course, the public schools weren't teaching any black history to anybody. So I had grown up and I was 42 years old when I found out who Harry Tubman was. And as I began to look around, I found out I was not alone. There were tons of people that are very accomplished African-Americans that had gone and gotten to great heights in this country that had no, I didn't even know there was slavery for Christ's sakes. And that's what this Black Lives Movement really is really, really all about. And it has to do with the erasing and the removal of every aspect of, of any black accomplishment, whatever, in the school systems. It's, it's really distressing and it's still happening to this day. Uh, you know, even small accomplishments. And so the black folks never got credit for doing anything, uh, whether they built this country. I mean, the white people are finding out now that black people built this country, built the whole infrastructure of this country, and they're just not finding it out. And especially the younger ones are just not finding this out and say, and that's why you see so many whites marching now. This is all new to them. It's just, I mean, you know. And so they're saying, you got to be kidding me. That happened and this happened. This stuff is all coming out now. Memorials will help, but we got to get to the classrooms and start teaching these young kids what really happened here. And, and this is not to say that black people are better than white people, but at least equal to, even though we only represent 13% of the population. So there's the education of the public through memorials. There's also the education in schools. And then you also want to educate artists, like you were talking about, having artists involved from the beginning to the completion of their monuments. So tell me about the infrastructure for black artists right now. What do you think that the art world is lacking? Well, first of all, it's capital. Because nobody can raise any money. If you're a black artist, what do you do? You operate out of your garage. You can't borrow any money. If If you're a black artist, you can forget borrowing any money no matter what you're doing, you know. And even if when you go do black memorials, there's a thing on the part of the black and the white community that somehow because you're black, uh, you can do things cheaper than you can if you're white. And I've had these white uh, uh, committees and say, this project is a million and a half dollars. Now you're black, so why don't you go to your suppliers and tell them to give you a black discount? And I said, well, I, I, I think I'd get thrown out of this guy's business if I walked to some white guy that sells me bronze and say, hey, dude, I'm black, so give me a black discount so I can do this thing cheaper, merely because I'm black, because I'm not worthy enough to pay the right price because it's a white memorial. 
they deserve a million and a half dollars for a white memorial. But that same memorial, if you do it in the black community, they want you to do it for $100,000. It's permeated throughout the 40 years of this. I've been watching it. And I have to fight like crazy to fight. You know, they'll just, they'll just flat ask me, what are you going to do with all that money? I mean, you know, I've done $5 million projects. You know, what are you going to do with all that money? I said, well, first of all, I'm going to build you a $5 million memorial. That's what I'm going to do with it, you know. Well, what makes you think you can build a $5 million memorial? I said, because I've, maybe I've already built a $5 million memorial and I know how to do it. Uh, and so when, when, you, when you get a black artist that comes along that can't get capitalized, he can't get good sponsors, he can't get committees that will give the right amount of money to do what he needs to do, expecting him to somehow scrape and scrounge and scrape to find the money from somebody, beg his friends for, to help him uh, get things finished. And what these black artists are tempted to do is take money that they know will not finish the project. They know it in the beginning that it won't finish the project, but they take it anyway and to go borrow money to finish it just so they can say they did it. Uh, you know, so they can build a portfolio. And that's the pain. But uh, but if you look around the country, I, I, I'm probably the only one. I've done probably $50 million worth, of $55 million, I think I carry the $55 million worth of memorials since I've been doing all this. But it, it has to do with the the ability to plan properly, how to make a proper proposal, uh, how to, go, to have a good business plan for it, and most of the artists that do that don't, they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to make the art. They don't know how to make the model of the art. But that's about the limit of it. And the rest of this stuff is all open for grabs. And they're at the mercy of other people, the foundries, you know. And a lot of the foundries will do a lot of the black artists' work at a discount. Because they know what I was just talking about. And they'll say, okay, we would normally charge you you know, $50,000 a cassette, but we'll only charge you 45 or 42 or something like that because they know that already. Uh, and and that's, that's not fair to them either. Uh, it's not fair to the foundries that you can't go to the foundries and say, okay, uh, you know, I have a million-dollar project and I'm, I'm going to pay you what you charge to do this project, you know. And that's what the problem is. These attitudes and the assumptions that you face, they sound infuriating. How do you think that we can seize this moment as a country and what do you want to see change about public art and the conversations we have around it? Well, you know, uh, you know, the public art that I want to see is more in the way of truth-telling. And what I mean by truth-telling, uh, I tell stories. I, I don't mind doing single image memorials. You know, I've done tons of them, okay? But I do my best, uh, all four sides of the pedestal. I, I excite the people with Great stories, and all four of the sides of the pedestal are engraved with stories about the people, what they did, what they can do, and words to live by, and all that kind of stuff, you know. But the largest story, and my most successful memorials that I have, are storytelling memorials. They start early in the game, and they just walk right through history, telling the truth. And I mean, naturally, I get tons of emails. I've got 10 PhD candidates that have done PhDs on my memorials. Uh, naturally, I'm their advisor and all that stuff, you know. And those things are in history and in archives, but that's what I like doing. And that's what I want to teach the, uh, other people to expand this 
to, it's one thing to have one sculpture of somebody standing there as a great person. It's other to give people a background, give them a context, and let them walk through history. And that's what I get when I get all these letters from kids, high school kids, college kids, people from foreign lands come over here and they said, this is the most educational thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I could stand there for hours looking at that. But that's what I enjoy. And that's what I would, if I were to propose doing more memorials to anybody would, would be to tell, uh, uh, because I, I like what I call visitor time. It's called stay time. And so I build my memorials to get stay time. And I can almost, I can sit down there and walk up to a memorial where nobody knows who I am. And I can time uh, to a time watch. And they're going there uh, in a hurry. They're running. And all of a sudden, they're staying there for an hour, hour and a half. And I'm sitting there watching them. And they're reading everything, every word on there. And they're studying every figure on there. And they reach up and touch it and all that all kind of stuff. When I, but when I see that happen, you know, you said, you said, hey, you know, uh, Dwight, you did okay. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for sharing your work with me today. Mm-hmm. Good. Th- this is the first art thing I've done in in years. By really? The way. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's it's all about, about astronauts and flying in space and all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it's it's got, it's got, it's kind of fun to talk about art. <laughs> Ed Dwight of Denver has sculpted 35 major works, many of which depict important black figures in history. It's an interview we couldn't forget from 2020, one we're especially grateful for. Thanks for sharing it, Avery. Absolutely. Avery Lil there, and I'm Ryan Warner. We're both grateful you listen to Colorado Matters from CPR News. 